Hey everyone, welcome to episode 78 of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Guy Spear. He is the founder and CEO of Aquamarine Capital, and he is the author of the book, The Education of a Value Investor. In this episode, we explore Guy's own evolution uh, throughout his career. When he first started out on Wall Street at a not so reputable firm, he was, as he put it, a Gordon Gecko wannabe. But when he found the world of Warren Buffett, that's where he found, as he put it, a lifeline. Now, Guy was um, part of a duo that won that charity lunch in 2008 uh, with Warren Buffett. And he explained how that lunch with Buffett was transformational, not only for his business, but it was also transformational for his life. And he shared some of the key takeaways there. We also explored his 25 years of running Aquamarine Capital, including some of the mistakes, uh, which are key learning moments. And it's important to go back and evaluate and learn from those experiences. We also went through his investing checklist, including some recent additions and a recent change to that checklist. I really enjoyed this conversation with Guy. There was so much wisdom on not only business and investing, but also life. And I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Now, if you're new to the channel, welcome. It is so great to have you. If you don't mind, please hit that like button and ring that notification bell so you won't miss any future episodes. And if you are listening to the show, if you feel so inclined, please leave a rating and a review so you can help more folks find these episodes. Your support means so much. I could not do this without you. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Guy Spear. Guy Spear, CEO of the Aquamarine Fund and author of the incredible book, Education of a Value Investor. It is so great to see you again, and it's so great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Guy. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, in a, We had about 15 minutes of conversation beforehand. It's the first time I've really been able to speak one-on-one to you, Julia. And if those of you who don't know, Julie is a multifaceted personality who has great sports interests. I just discovered that Julia has an interest in horses, and she's also a great triathlete. So, uh, oh well, I don't know about great. I'm a one-time, one-time half Ironman finisher. But well, 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 the fact that you finished means to me that you're a great triathlete. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, guy, I'm excited to have you on, and I was rereading your book, Education of a Value Investor. And for the folks watching and listening, I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. And I can't believe it's been almost 10 years since you published. And, you know, it was a great reminder too, because I was just reading the first chapter and it, you know, I got to say the writing is, it's very raw and very introspective. And I liked the way you started the book, because honestly, I forgot about this, um, that, you kind of said that you started off your career kind of wanting to be a Gordon Gecko wannabe in your own words, and you uh, worked for a not so reputable firm early in your career. I was hoping we could kind of start there and juxtapose that time in your life and kind of finding that lifeline, if you will, um, through studying folks like Warren Buffett. Yeah, you know, um, I I will never forget the moment. So I, I'm I'm writing draft chapters for the book, and it's the the outline of the book. I haven't really decided what's going in and what's not, but I know where I was when I made the decision that this draft chapter or this piece of writing that I'd done was going to make it into the book, and that I was probably going to start with the book. And I know that in the same moment, I said to myself, "You may be kissing goodbye 
to your career in finance because once you've published this, there'll be nobody who wanted will want to have anything to do with you. And it's a it's a fascinating example of how you know Jordan Peterson says uh, if you want to have an adventure, tell the truth. And it I, the moment when I was writing the book uh, was a moment when I was willing to just like be brutally honest. And exactly how I got the motivation to do that is kind of like one of those strange things that is sort of like maybe kind of divinely inspired or something. And just for somebody who hasn't read it, uh, it, it is not, I was, I was working at a place that um, uh, is not dissimilar to Wolf of Wall Street, uh, that movie. When I went up in the elevator on uh, 40, I don't remember if it was 40 or 44 Wall Street, right next to the uh, one in the nine train, there, I was working on the second floor, and there were regularly girls uh, who were going up to the 14th and the 15th floor who did not like look like they were there for uh, professional finance reasons, if you like. And I found myself being super envious because the brokers on the 14th and the 15th floor, some of them were very openly former drug dealers, and they didn't have a college education, and they'd found a way to get through their NASD series I don't remember what the number of the series was. There were some exams that you had to do in order to become a broker. But they were making enormous amounts of money, and I had a huge amount of envy because I measured success by the title that I had and the amount of money that I stood to make. That was the kind of shallow piece of work that I was. And I even, um, gosh, it was during your lunch breaks, I was reading um, that you would go down to Zuccotti Bark to kind of escape um, this kind of shallow world that you found yourself in and started reading um you read uh ben graham's the intelligent investor with a preface from warren buffett and then of course yeah. you picked up roger lowenstein's um buffett the making the making of american capitalists talk to me about that you, you called that a lifeline for you was finding warren buffett yeah i mean so uh the the picture you can have is that there's there's a firm where there are vi moral vi and ethical violations taking place possibly legal violations although i wasn't aware of it. And I'm desperate not to acknowledge that I've made a huge mistake. I want to make a success of this. I've been at the firm maybe eight or nine months, and I want to get it, have done a deal. You know, I don't want to leave before having done a deal. And uh, the, so on, for those people who maybe even work in downtown Manhattan or know downtown Manhattan, so I'd walk down Wall Street and take a left and a block or two down, there was a bookstore called Bloomberg. And I would just go in there and look at books. And slightly up from there, there was, was I'd go and play pick up chess at lunchtime. And the first book I bought, you should know, Julia, was a, was a big, fat blue book called Fabozzi on Bonds, you know, which is like a huge, thick, heavy tome. It's not clear to me whether that was ever meant as a book to be read or just a book to sit behind some bond traders. Uh, like on the on bookshelf. The <laughs> yeah, to show how how smart yeah. they are. And it was all about convexity and concavity of bonds and bond duration and um, uh, a whole bunch of mathematics. But it was in that spirit that I was just picking up books. And I just, re I, I remember, I don't know where I was, but I remember reading the introduction and then I, I, I zipped through the book in no time. And I think that what's interesting, and I don't know how many people uh, who are listening to this have this experience. It's not like there's any logic, this feeling wells up from inside of me saying, this guy's doing it right, and I'm in the wrong place. How do I get from here to there? And I think that 
when you know, sort of like in a certain way, the call to adventure. That, that I, I find it. There's been two or three times in my life where I haven't been taken a decision because I know I ought to, because this is the right thing to do. It's kind of wells up inside. It may be, you know, I think hopefully that people's decisions to get married are like that. And um, it's really fun because that, that you're onto something when that happens, you know. But yeah. yeah, so then I read Lowenstein's biography. And then I did something that was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was transformational for me. I mean, I was losing sleep. I was saying, I hate where I am. This place is awful. How do I get to where this guy is? And I called up Berkshire Hathaway and asked for an annual report. There was no way to order annual reports online at the time. And I'd ordered some annual reports of the companies who was invested in. I remember getting the Geico annual report, Cap Cities ABC, and Coca-Cola annual reports. And uh, and then I asked myself, what would Warren Buffett do in my shoes? And um, you know, I started taking steps. It's a fascinating thing when that happens because suddenly I was walking into a different reality. I don't know if you've ex experienced something like that. I I have. There's certain people that I look up to and like when certain moments come up I will say like what would this person do so I, I can definitely see that so you started going um soon after I guess you started going to the annual meeting talk to me about like that experience as well like um making that I think you've gone what 25 plus times at this point I'm embarrassed to say that other than um COVID obviously the the meetings that didn't take place physically I didn't attend but there were a couple of meetings in the 1990s that I didn't attend, idiot me. But um, I, what exactly drove me to fly out to Omaha? I mean, uh, because now I understand it and I can give all the rationale of why it's really, really smart to go and get close to people that you admire and people that you want to become more like. And that is actually, I would tell you, Julia, the true meaning of pilgrimage. If you want to undertake a true pilgrimage, it's kind of like to go and reconnect with your values. But exactly what drove me then, I mean, I flew out and I knew nobody. I remember going to Gorats and speaking to other people who knew nobody. I was just walking around uh, pretty ignorant, really. And I hadn't met, I mean, I, I hadn't met some of our mutual friends, for example. I literally knew nobody. Um, I don't know exactly what drove me to do it, but I'm glad I did. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so like, I'm trying to make the timeline because you started... Um, the Aquamarine Fund, you started in 97. Um, yes. And then probably through getting to meet folks, um, Monish Prabhai was a big influence. And I'm trying to recall because in the book, you picked up a habit of writing thank you notes. And I think you sent like a note yeah. afterward. Um, and was that, was the thank you note writing, was that influenced by Buffett? So I, I think, no, I don't think that specifically was influenced by Buffett. At the same time that I'm reading finance books uh, and a whole ton of others, in addition to Fabozzi and The Intelligent Investor and Lowenstein's book, I'm also um, a very, very heavy, heavy visitor to, you know, at the time we had physical Barnes & Noble stores. There was a Barnes & Noble on the Upper West Side. And I was a heavy visitor to the self-help section. And I was picking up all sorts of books on how to help yourself. And then having started to read about Warren Buffett, I'd started to get to know about Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. So I'm starting to apply all of these things in my life without any real understanding of where it was going. So, you know, in one of the most important takeaways from Dale Carnegie's book, which Warren is so good at, is 
just remember somebody's name. I, I will never forget these words in the Dale Carnegie book is the sweetest sound to any person is the sound of their own name, which is kind of rather surprising, but true. So I'm implementing that. Uh, I've read because I've become a big fan of Charlie Munger. So I'm reading uh, Robert Cialdini's book, The Psychology of Influence. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, reciprocation. So I, there was a certain point at which, I mean, there's a, there's, I don't know if this is just me or others have done the same thing. There's something slightly off the wall about what I was doing. So I, I'd, I'd, I'd go and buy a bunch of sweets and I'd have a goal by the end of the day to have given away 20 sweets to the cab driver, to the doorman, to the receptionist, to whoever the hell I met, I'd give them something in the same spirit of reciprocation that uh, Cialdini was talking about. And, you know, and, and then I was writing thank you notes in the same spirit of reciprocation. So every single damn thing I did, I mean, I wrote so many thank you notes, you cannot believe. I still write thank you notes, by the way, to all sorts of people. One of them was to Monish Pabrai. And somehow, you'll have to ask him sometime, it had an impact out of, there must have been at least 100, 150 people at his meeting in Chicago. Uh, but for some reason, the letter made him want to get in touch with me. And so the, the, the Greenwich Delamar Hotel in Greenwich, Connecticut, he was meeting people there. And I was his last meeting. And we had, I think it was dinner. I, it was either lunch. I think it was dinner that we had. And I was luckily the last meeting. And I tried to make that meeting count because I knew, I thought I might never have a one-on-one -on -one with him again, you know. Yeah. But in in that me in that in that dinner, I think it was dinner. We talked. So there are some books that came up that had a huge influence on me and had an influence on writing the book. One was the bio autobiography of Mahatma Gandhi, whose the subtitle of the book is a story of my experimentations with the truth, and you know this idea of tell the truth and you'll get an adventure in your life. So. So that's how I ended up with Monish Pabrai. Well, you mentioned the thank you note thing too. And I actually found that that works really well. I was just pulled out all my, uh, my stationery that I keep. I, would, I used to send a lot of notes after doing these interviews. And then you'd be surprised, like who writes you back? It's kind of incredible because most folks I found, they get tons and tons of emails, but a nice handwritten note that comes across your desk, they might yeah. be more likely to open it. Okay. So now but we... I, and and if you wanted me to, I could dive into some very practical and um, uh, grounded reasons why those thank you notes are so powerful. I'd like, let's do it. I'd love to hear it because I think yeah. more people should write them. I always order stationery. I think it's a great practice. So, so the first thing is when we write a thank you note, um, I, I, there's, there's a connection. So I develop a connection to the person, a genuine connection. So because, because somehow with pen in hand, writing on a piece of paper, so it actually does deepen my relationship to them. And it, it, there's a different kind of thinking about what to write to them. So then if we if we talk about the, rec the receipt end of it, the state of mind that we're in when we open mail, especially if it's hand addressed, is completely different to the state of mind we're in when we're looking at email. In email, the, it's one email amongst hundreds. It's competing for attention. Instead, you have this tactile experience of opening an envelope, seeing what's inside. Now you have the card, if it's a card, and hopefully it's a short note. And um, so it, 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 you know, books now, we give books in part because it's a physical manifestation of the ideas that we want to share with somebody. And could we send them a Kindle book? And are they likely to read on a Kindle? Yes, but that's not the same as... So the note is a physical manifestation of a thought. And the thought is a thought of gratitude. It actually gives the recipient 
a feeling of significance. They're like this person. So there's so much around the note that this does not happen with email or it's far harder to communicate with email. Now what happens to the note? I have visited people's offices and I have seen notes that are pinned up on the wall or they're in a drawer. They don't get thrown away. And so there's a there's a huge impact on the person. You know, we can't really judge it, but I I, I would want to estimate 100x, 100 times more powerful to the physical note than anything that you do by email. How did I do? I could not agree with you more. I'm thinking like actually, I have a note like from I have I have a note from uh, Ken Langone. I wrote him after doing an interview with him. He did a yeah. He did a, a fireside chat with me, and I enjoyed it so much. I wrote him a handwritten note, and I used to I used to even get my stationery to match whichever company I was. I have blue because that's my podcast colors, but it was purple yeah. when I was at Yahoo. And come across their desk, assuming okay, maybe they'll notice it and open it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. There's something about that where's the email takes up too much headspace. Um, but I love I I love Ken Langone. I had one meeting with him, and he had a huge impact on me, and he taught it, yeah. me. An enormous amount. I just want to share one thing, Julia, because I know the listeners will want to hear this. You know, there is not, I, I really do believe this, there's not one thing that I've learned in business and investing that I don't realize after I've learned it that Warren Buffett already knows it. So, you know, every now and then, once in a blue moon, Warren Buffett will send me a handwritten note. And he takes it one step farther. He knows exactly that this is a huge deal for people like me, and he doesn't just do it for me, so it's not like I'm that special, but um, he writes on just the front side. He doesn't write on the back side because he knows that I'm likely going to want to frame it, which of course I have done, and um, so he gets it as well, and he does it all the time, all the time. I'm blown away by how much he does it. and. You know, if Warren Buffett's doing it, then then you know Julia LaRoche and Guy Spears should certainly do it. Yeah, just take the time to do that. Well, I wanted to bring up your um, relationship with Monish, who's also just an incredible investor as well, and he's also yeah. an author. He's got a great book too. Um, because the two of you, and this was two thousand eight, you yes. bid on one of those charity lunches with Warren Buffett. I know they don't. I think they already had the last, the last one's already taken place, but you got one of those coveted charity lunches with Warren Buffett. Can you take us back to that time in your life? Um, and I guess the bidding process, what was kind of going through your mind? You you put up $250,000, which is, that was a lot of money then. I know the lunch goes or was going in recent years for millions and millions, but you still yeah. put up a lot of money. Take us back last to that Last lunch went for 20 million. Wow. <laughs> and okay, I was, so you got a good deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I, we did. And I, I was a, a third of our bid. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to be really, really clear, this was Monish's idea. So, so this is actually, we after that first meeting, we have uh, some exchanges by email and maybe one or two phone calls, but it's not like we're friends. It just was a nice meeting. Now, uh, he and I are both attending the Value Investors Congress at uh, Columbus Circle. And he says, Guy, you're attending the Congress. Would you like to meet for breakfast? And I did something that, again, in retrospect, I think was smart. I scouted out the place where we were going to have breakfast. And I visited the restaurant the day before. So it was in the um, Mandarin Oriental. They have one of these sky lobbies and you have a breakfast area with beautiful views over Central Park where you kind of feel like you're falling into the trees. And so we're sitting there at the Mandarin Oriental at Columbus Circle and he brings up the idea of the lunch. And so many conversations with Monish have gone this way for me where I say, 
I mean, what a dumb idea. I say what most people think. I say, what a dumb idea. Why on earth would you pay so much money to have lunch with somebody? And then he comes up with this logic. First of all, he says, um, uh, you know, plenty of people give money to charity and it's a worthy charity and they don't get lunch. Second of all, this is an opportunity to say thank you to somebody who's taught us an awful lot. And he kind of helped me to, to separate out uh, all the all the kind of like noise from the very, very simple, pure reason of getting the opportunity to say thank you to Warren face to face. And so he he was like, I, I agreed to be his bidding partner, but he was in charge of the bidding and all of that. First year, we didn't get it. Okay. Second year, we did. Uh, I was a little worried of, you know, I was a guy with young children. I was a little worried of going beyond the quarter of a million that I'd committed to. And Monish in his extraordinary generosity had said, you know what, guy, I get that. You've got young children. No matter what the bidding goes to, I'll cap you at 250. And I kind of then said, well, if you, you know, if, if I can't be a third of the bid, maybe somebody else should take my place. And he was so incredibly loyal. He said, no, no. And he barely knows me. He says, no, you're the guy I'm bidding with. And we're going to do this together. And if that's your cap, that's not a problem. And as it came out, we came out that my share was a little under 250. So it was perfect. I know where I was when we won. And the first thing I did, uh, I did not want to call up Monish until we'd wired the money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the next right. morning, <laughs> we wire the money, or I, I get the money wired. And then I talked to Monish because, you know, wanted to make sure that all bills were settled, if you like. So yeah, of course. It, was, it, it was transformational. And you know, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, I I love here in Zurich. It's summertime. I love going rowing very very early in the morning. Sometimes the boats meet at six a.m., which means you have to get up get up at five a.m. And you know, there's this feeling of, am I a total idiot for doing this? And then my family are looking at me they're saying he's setting his alarm for five a.m. to get to rowing at six. And then you you get to that moment on the water, and the sun is rising, and you just think, wow, I'm so glad I'm here. And this was. One of these things where everybody's looking at me and going, are you a complete and utter idiot for doing this? And it's just interesting for me, it's, there's some piece of wisdom there that so, often the most important things and the most valuable things we can do for ourselves look like utter ridiculousness to the outside world. Wow. And we should still go ahead. I love yeah. that. You and you you called the lunch transformational. Um, that's what I, I hear from you. And I know you wrote about that. Talk to me about some of the changes that you made or the way that lunch yeah. transformed you. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you one of the most painful ways in which it transformed me, but, but liberating at the same time. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm a graduate of a good university. I have a good degree result. I kind of think something of my abilities and intelligence. And so there's a part of me that wants to believe that I'm Warren Buffett's intellectual equal. And it's not like we've sat side by side and done intelligence tests, but my experience of, and, and there's an age difference and there's an experience difference. So there's all sorts of other possible explanatory factors. But I think that I can get a good sense of whether somebody's got a clock speed that's higher than mine. I hate it, but it's, you know, like the, the, some people have a higher clock speed. Their brains work faster. They solve a problem faster. They see something faster. They see a connection and I and and I had I was treated to three and a half hours of that, you know, where I could see a guy who had a higher clock speed than mine, and I was racing, and he was in his his engine was just kind of ticking over, you know, happily and slowly, while I was racing to kind of and wherever I went, it's as if or wherever we went because there was there was Monish and his wife and two daughters, and there was me and my wife. Warren, it was like he'd already gone there. And and one example of that is that 
wherever the conversation went, it was like he was like, "Oh, you're going in that direction. That's nice, you know." And so, so that's I had I there was no way that I could realistically not come to the conclusion that this guy has a brain that works at a faster rate than mine does. And I've since I had a conversation with Alice Schroeder about this. She said, "Yeah, her experience entirely." And Alice Schroeder is no dummy either. She's the author of that book, The Snowball. Uh, biography of Warren Buffett. So why is that transformational? Because you can't believe, I don't think any, how much of myself and how much energy I was investing in sort of trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to, trying to prove that I was in some way the intellectual equal of Warren Buffett or something like that. And there's a freedom that comes with accepting that because once I'd accepted that and I was no longer hankering over after that, I could take those energies and redirect them in a better direction. And so those kinds of meetings where you get that change, where you give up something that you know now is unattainable can free up enormous amounts of energy for you. And so in that way, it was transformational and in other ways as well. I mean, uh, I'll just give you one more and I could go on for for a long time, but this this again for me is, um, I can't tell you, Julia, how um, startling it was for me to be sitting in the. I mean, I think at that point his his stated net worth, according to whichever list it was, was like eighty billion, and I know that that shouldn't count for anything. And at the very beginning, I kind of said, you know, Warren. You paid $100,000 and all of the money that you've, all of the shares of Berkshire Hathaway are going to go to charity. So actually, you know, you're, you're less wealthy than I am, at least as far as Berkshire Hathaway shares are concerned. And he, he laughed and he said, that's absolutely right. But at the end of the day, you know, that's his net worth as normally calculated. So I'm sitting there with certainly not that net worth. And this guy who's worth 80 billion, who controls a, a corporation whose balance sheet at the time, probably, I don't, I don't. Well, book value would have been around 80 billion. Maybe the balance sheet's 150 billion. I mean, that's a substantial corporation. And this guy is laser focused on us. I mean, he is there 110%. You know, and, and at some point he says, uh, I, I don't know apropos of what, but he says, Well, you guys have paid a lot for this. I want to make damn sure that you get your money's worth. Here's a guy whose status is so far beyond mine, and he wants to serve me. He wants to make sure that I get my money's worth. He's not limiting us on time. You know, I remember that I had come into the, the world of business, out of business school, with this insane arrogance, this, this, this feeling that the world owes me a living, and this feeling that I, with my intellectual, not brilliance, we know now, but with my stupid MBA, shiny MBA, the world owed me a living. And there's a guy who shows up who's worth 80 billion or more, and the world owes him nothing. He owes the world. That, that for me, I mean, you know, to process that and to understand that he was there to serve, and actually the best, most meaningful life is to serve people, is, you know, I, I don't know of a better way to have learned it. And I could have labored through my whole life not having learned that, if you like. So that distinction yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, as you can see, but I have to pause to see where Julia wants to take the conversation. No, I love that because I think also, like, um, if I recall too, that also reinforced this notion of, you know, the inner scorecard that you that he often talks about, but I know you wrote about it versus like your outer scorecard, doesn't it? I mean, um, 
So, so one of the questions that he asked us at the lunch, you know, and he said, would you rather that uh, your, the world think that you are the best lover in the world while your wife knows that you're the worst lover in the world? Or would you rather it the other way around? Would you rather the world thinks that you're an awful lover, but your wife knows that you're actually awesome? And so he made that distinction extremely clear for us. He, he, in a certain way, in serving us, he wanted to be a guy who, by his own inner scorecard, did the right thing by people who'd won a lunch. He didn't care what the rest of the world thought, how long it took, or any of those things. So that was one minor example, very minor example, of him living his life according to that inner scorecard. Um, and I, I think that at the time that I got to the lunch, I mean, I had understood the I actually maybe I hadn't even understood it. I think that was the first time that he'd said it directly in that way. And um, and I was kind of caught in the middle. I mean, there were some aspects of what I was doing, which was certainly in a scorecard, but there was an enormous amount that was out of scorecard type stuff. And so, yeah, I think that it accelerated my my learning. And that's a kind of like, it's not like learning how to do differential equations. It's a kind of a spiritual slash moral slash how to live your life learning to make that distinction. Wait, why am I doing this? Am I trying to make people think I'm great? when I'm actually not that great, or I'm actually working on making myself great. And I can tell you, Julia, I have actually said, I've repeated that story to somebody at a dinner somewhere. And, and the guy without batting an eyelid says to me, well, obviously, we want the world to think that we're the greatest lover in the world. And who cares about what our wife thinks? I mean, he literally said that jaw kind of dropped. So we, you know, you're an attendee many times of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. So I think that you probably mm -hmm. understand the ethos pretty well. But there are a lot of people who are uh, very far away from that and do not do not get the distinction. And once you get the distinction, once you see the pattern, then you see it everywhere and then you see it in yourself and then you can start making better decisions. Yeah. And what really matters. One of the other things I remember too, reading the book um, and you're sitting in um, Zurich, Switzerland, and I know you wanted to get out of that so-called like hedge fund vortex of like Wall Street in New York. And also you made business decisions like changing the fee structure. And I don't know if that was before the lunch or or right after the lunch, but talk to me about the, the business side of things that changed because of that transformational lunch. I mean, you know, it, I it's true. I So I arrived at the lunch, Julia, a little sick because I, I was nervous and I'd lost sleep over. And I mean, more than anything else, I had this deep fear that Warren would have met me and he'll be like, yeah, you know, and there wouldn't have been any warmth afterwards and no desire to connect with me again. And at the time I had, you know, Monish Pabrai had um, copied very closely or to, to, to the last dot, the Buffett partnership model, which didn't charge a fee. But I, um, because I had been snow white, but drifted had been allowed myself to be convinced by various advisors that I should charge what was considered standard was a 1% management fee. And um, I was so scared of not of Warren Buffett, not liking me and, and that I that I went to my lawyers and I said, we're doing this, we're we're gonna so so what I did was, I didn't change the fee structure on existing investors. But I said, we're creating a fee class, that is zero management fee, we have to have that in place. I'm not going to the lunch if it's not in place and you're going to do it. And they really didn't want to do it. I mean, I had to just 
um, insist and tell them that there was no way out of it. And then they kind of like reluctantly did it. So I can say that it was the launch that got me to do that. And it was one of the early questions that I, I, I of course, I couldn't wait to tell Warren Buffett that I'd done this. I wanted to make sure that he knew which direction I was headed. And I said, is it, I explained to him how hard it was for me to do. I said, does it get any easier to do the right thing? And and he said a little. So, uh, but you know, the, the, in a certain way, I, it, it would be wrong to say that I'm ashamed, but I'm sorry that I didn't get that right first time. And I think that, you know, I, I've spent plenty of time kicking all sorts of ideas around with, with Monish. And you know, you see that we have very different minds. And so Monish is somebody who sees some things very, very clearly. There's a very clear, bright line between you know, the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do. So when Warren was copying the Buffett partnerships, there's no question in his mind that he was going to do it exactly. He didn't even, he, he, I think he's written this somewhere. He did not know at the time that he was doing it, why he was doing it, but he saw afterwards why there's some aspects of the partnership structure that Warren had created made sense. Whereas I see the world in a little bit more in shades of gray, and so I allowed myself to drift a little bit. There may be benefits to, to seeing the world in shades of gray, but in terms of setting up the partnership structure, I wish that I had done the right thing from the get-go. Yeah. I want to um, bring up, I guess, uh, like more current um, times. So I was reading your recent annual letter, um, which you, by the way, you write great annual letters and, and I know they're public and available on your site. And one of the things is just kind of understanding who you are. You are, you're in this world of value investing, you're value oriented. Um, I apologize. My dog is messing with this uh, again. Um, you're value oriented. He wants to be part of the show. He, you just got to let I him think see. He does. So I it's okay. Here he is, everybody. That this is Winston um, sitting on my lap. I think you should. I think you should keep him in the picture. <laughs> that would be funny. Um, so you're a value-oriented investor, and I was reading your annual letter uh, for 2022, and it is public for the folks watching, listening to go pick up. And it's just more of a curiosity um, for someone who's in the value world. How how much of the macro environment matters? How much do you pay attention to it? And kind of what is your big picture assessment today? You know, um, I, I I will answer that to the best of my ability. Thank you for your compliment on the letter. What I would tell you is that I don't write that well. So all of the ideas in the letter are my ideas, but I and I write a draft of the letter. And then I share it with my friend, William Green. Uh, and this year, we spent a week together. We also recorded a couple of podcast episodes. And he takes what would be a far more turgid and difficult thing to read and turns it into thing, a thing of great beauty. And it's something that um, we have an interesting relationship. I think both William and I have skills, qualities, and abilities that we envy in each other. And I envy. And I just think it's important to say that uh, you know, I, I one of the most important things to do in life is to give credit to, and and you never diminish yourself by giving credit, even if it's not due. But in this case, it certainly is. So I could not let that your very nice compliment go by without saying thank you to William for his incredible work and acknowledging that. Uh, I it, too many times I see, and it's a great shame because uh, that that people don't work to give credit to all the team members that make something possible. So I just wanted you, the audience to know that. But in terms of macro, I, I can tell you, Julia, that I can remember people 
friends who, when Donald Trump was elected, were convinced that the American economy was going to hell in a handbasket and they lightened up drastically or even sold out of all of their shares. And I can't say that uh, when you have a very, very big macro event or a big fear, thing that creates fear, it's not easy to ignore. I can't pretend that I'm not thinking about it. But I have experienced so many times that the right thing to do is to ignore it and to just focus on these this very, very narrow set of questions. So right now, you know, there's uh, conversations. I don't know when this will come out, but I've received multiple messages in my WhatsApp from various friends in Europe primarily asking what they think, what I think of the debt ceiling. And whether, you know, and there was just an article today, I think, in the FT that Janet Yellen was saying that we're close to the risks of America defaulting is are going up, you know, because the debt ceiling is getting close and the negotiations are not. So I kind of, you cannot not look at that. But at the same time, I don't want to use that to kind of veer with the portfolio left or right, if you like. So, uh, so I really do try to ignore it. And I, my experience has been the more I ignore it, the better it is. Yeah, that's a, it's a good um, principle. And, you know, I was one of the things that stood out to me in the letter was um, you were talking about like there were all of these stock names that kept on coming up, these kind of high flyers. Um, they ended up being more like bubbles, but kind of um, the psychological dimension that came with that, the impact that it had on you, like these overhyped names. And did you miss out on them or, or not? Could, can you kind of talk about that? Because you talk about acknowledging, as you put it, your own vulnerability. Um, yeah, and, and I, I just think that um, there are too many of us, including perhaps me, uh, or at least previous versions of me, who have this perception that there is some idealized value investor out there whose heartstrings are not plucked by these um, great story stocks and uh, fear of missing out and all of those things. And that somehow that's a different breed of person. And I, I at least in my case, I, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that, um, so, so I write about how those things, I heard those siren songs. I was, I was drawn by those siren songs. It's not like I sailed like Odysseus past the sirens and I had blinders on. You know, we see them as well. And I think that we're better off acknowledging those vulnerabilities. We're far more likely, or at least this individual is far more likely to be able to navigate those treacherous waters when we acknowledge them in that way. And, and in a certain way, almost honor it, if you like. Now, I, I would tell you that I think that there is there, there are some people who, who get um, some kind of endorphin kick out of gambling, out of taking a plunge on a stock or on a horse or on a... And I've never really felt that. So, you know, that in my case, that's not that's not something that I have difficulties with. But I think that if let's say that somebody who does have that, can you be a long-term investor? My answer is yes, but but not before you acknowledge very, very clearly that you have this tendency and you need to honor it in some way and you need to acknowledge it in some way. There's this very weird thing that in many things in life. Certainly, I think with investing, but probably also true of relationships, that when we acknowledge our worst faults, when we kind of come to them head on and really take them in the pit of our stomach, that's when we can really work through them and do get something better on the other side. As long as we're pretending we don't have those faults, they kind of they're going to clobber us one way or another. So, in a in a sense, 
you know, a, a letter like that, which is likely to be read by the general public, is a wonderful opportunity for personal spiritual growth, if you like. By acknowledging those vulnerabilities in the letter, I'm actually helping myself. And there's this weird thing. The more, the more we acknowledge our ignorance, the more we acknowledge what we don't know, the more we acknowledge the kind of the dark side or the shadow. My wife is doing a course in coaching. She's super excited. She's discovered there's this thing called the shadow. Yeah. If we can shine a light on that, that's what really makes us kind of strong at the end of the day. And that's what I'm trying to do in the letter. That's fascinating. And I take it in that process. I, I imagine you, you're probably William Green, by the way, great author, um, richer, wiser, happier, incredible book. That's right. uh, another one to go pick up. Uh, do, do you, uh, so do you all have a conversations and he helps extract some of these ideas from you and then you all put them um, in the letter? Like how does, how does that kind of process work? Cause I imagine you probably have a, a lot of unlocks within that process. I mean, I, you know, I think that in general, in an ideal world, the ratio of raw text to final text is is at least three to one, if not greater. I mean, they say with shooting movies, you you get kind of ratios that are as high as eight hours of movie shot for every hour that actually gets into the final movie. And so I need to get to the kind of final edits with William with, um, you know, pretty much everything I've thought written down. And in some cases, it's just a case of saying it in a more elegant way. And there's a way of putting words together that I don't think if I'd spent 20 or 30 years working in news organizations and writing articles, I still don't, I think I could improve. There's an element of it, which is craftsmanship. But then some people are just better craftsmen than others. In William's case, he goes one step further, which is that uh, uh, he will he will see that there's something that I am reaching for that I haven't yet gotten to. One reason or another, I mean, the, the example that really stands in my mind is, um, you know, editing the chapter in my book on the financial crisis, where he kind of, re we do a read through of the chapter as I've written it. And he says, you know, you've totally flubbed this guy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He, he says, you, you have not I called you during that time. You said to me, we're bleeding from every orifice. Do you remember that? I'm like, no, I don't. So this was a case of something that I'd wanted to put into the shadow, onto the dark side, something I did not want to acknowledge in myself. And he kind of sits there and it's not an easy thing to do because it, this is very sensitive and delicate. And, you know, you're talking about somebody's feelings, very strong feelings. And there's, you know, there's sometimes when I write the letter, I'm in enormous pain and but he wants to kind of he knows that i'm i want to write the honest truth and so he will read what i've written and then kind of push a little bit further and say don't you mean to say this or mm -hmm. could you just talk to me about what you're trying to write here and he'll draw it out of me and and sometimes it comes out easily but often it comes out reluctantly so that you know and and it's interesting i've never heard the word unlock but you're right there's a kind of an unlock that takes place i think that so, so um, William wrote uh, "Richer, Wiser, Happier" entirely on his own. He didn't have a collaborator like 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 I've had in my writing. Uh, he had an editor, but the editor, as best I can tell, didn't do an enormous amount. Uh, I would tell you that if you're not a professional, if you're not a if you're not if you're a civilian in the process, is the way I like to say it, then I think that writing works much better when it's collaborative, especially when you're collaborating with professionals. And in my case. The writing that I've done has been collaborative in that way. Yeah, no, I just went and looked in the book, uh, that line where we had that conversation, we're bleeding from every orifice, and you said that you had no <laughs> recollection. 
at the time. Um, okay. So one of the things I really liked in your book, and I know you made a change because reading your annual letter is you have this checklist, the checklist, yes. and that's part of your investment process. Things like stop checking the stock price. Number two, if someone tries to sell you something, don't buy it. Number three, don't talk to management. And then I was yes. reading in your letter, um, and you said, in retrospect, I think this was a mistake. For me, it's mostly beneficial to meet with management, given that they are a critical piece of the overall puzzle that I need to understand. Can you talk to me about when you realized that was a mistake before you not talking to management? Yeah, I can. And um, I mean, it, there, there were all sorts of signals as to why it wasn't a good idea. And um, uh, but but really, it was driven home to me because uh, you know, there's 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 one um, the the other than the financial crisis, the very very worst period for me in managing the fund has been when we had a bankruptcy in the portfolio, and you know that is the, the that is the polar opposite of what I'm being paid to do. I mean, I'm being paid to find things that are valuable and that will go up in price. A 100% loss on your investment is not a good result. It's the very, very worst possible result. And I had one of those. I would have liked to have gotten through my career without having one of those. And um, in my post-mortem of that investment, and so, you know, what so an idea that I've shared in, in a few places that I think is really powerful is when you make a big mistake, you know, don't double down on the mistake by not analyzing it. You know, if you're going to go through the pain of the loss, at least you can get the benefit of the learning. So that the key there is to do as much, rub your nose on your mistakes, as Charlie Munger says, but do as much, um, uh, well, what do they call it? Monday night, no, post-weekend quarterbacking. Oh, or something well, was like it that. your uh, armchair quarterback or Monday, Monday morning quarterback? Yeah. Well, well, in this case, it's, it's, it is worthwhile because you're going back over it. And I do this all the time when I lose things, and I lose things constantly. You know, when something goes wrong, there are usually multiple things that came together to make it go wrong. And, um, you know, and, and I go back and I want to see what were the things that I could have done differently to prevent this thing from going wrong? What what were the key things that that made? So when I lose my keys, and I've done it multiple times in taxi, there's a simple rule, which is don't have your keys out, you know, have your keys always in a pocket. And if you have to take your wallet out or your keys out, then put them back in the pocket always your pocket. And I literally used to take my keys out or or leave them on the car seat next to me. I mean, you're creating the condition. So I went and did a post-mortem of all the different bits that led up to this situation where this company filed for bankruptcy. And I mean, one of them was that I was not paying attention to the buildup of debt. When I'd invested in the company, uh, they had very little debt, but then they built up debt because they had some projects that they wanted to do. And I really didn't think about it too much. So on the way in, I checked out on leverage, but during the process, I hadn't. But another thing that I realized was that, and they were building a, a, a spanking new plant that was going to transform the company. But I would, I believe that if I had visited the plant and the management was saying, oh, we're not ready, we're not ready, please don't come visit now, it's the quiet period. But I think that even if I'd just shown up outside the plant and um, spoken to employees at a nearby Starbucks, I would have gotten a sense that things weren't going according to plan. Mm -hmm. And so that really drove the lesson home for, for me that mm -hmm. the idea that you can you know, sit in a dark room and be remote from all human contact and do this successfully, I don't think is the case. And it's something that uh, to reset, I mean, I think that Warren in his 90s 
uh, with all of the experience that he has, is okay sitting in his office in Omaha. But it's well known that when he was in his 30s and 40s, he was traveling around, he was meeting with managements, he was a very, very active guy. He wasn't sitting in a dark room contemplating his neighbor and thinking about what the right investment is. So that's when that was really driven home to me. Yeah. And I'm looking in the letter that was 2016 Horsehead Holdings. What what was Horsehead Holdings? So it's not that far away from you, a company based in Pittsburgh. Okay. And uh, they uh, are a recycler of zinc. They, the, the company by that name no longer exists. Uh, but they had a process by which they were taking um, cuttings from electric arc furnaces and recycling that into zinc at a cost which was less than mining the zinc. And because um, of the way that industry was structured, there was only really space for one player and they were kind of the dominant player. And once that player was in place, so it's a bit like cement plants where when once you've got a cement plant in a local area, nobody's really going to build another one because one is enough. And so they had this kind of dominant franchise in this and, and as more and more steel got made by electric arc furnaces, there were more and more uh, of these metal cuttings, which is actually a toxic waste. They were actually being paid to take this toxic waste away and recycle it into zinc. So there were a zinc recycler that, got, that built a new plant uh, with a new process, which cost too much uh, and took twice as long. And um, at that very same time, the price of zinc declined sufficiently for them to go into mild distress. Yeah. Well, I noticed too, in um, the letter you added, I think you added, these were new checklist items. And in the book, you had eight different items. And I think in the letter, you add three more. And I'll, I'll quickly summarize them and let you elaborate yeah. on them. But yeah. um, to keep you, these are to help keep you grounded in reality. One, um, and this is paraphrasing, can a company fund all of its own growth? And um, is any, I guess, any speculative investment from internally generated cash flow um, to is, um, am I relying on company financial statements or am I paying too much attention to public statements and presentations, I suppose, put out by the company? And then three is, it has to do with, um, I'm looking in the letter, uh, the gap, gap accounting, I guess, do they follow gap accounting? Um, or do they kind of generate their own accounting measures and report those instead of sticking to the generally accepted accounting principles? Um, can you talk to me about like the addition of those three um, to your process? So, uh, you know, it all, and, and I hope that I'm not upsetting anyone by mentioning a couple of company names here. So I have sat in presentations by people I admire and respect uh, for a company called Carvana. Mm -hmm. And at the time that those presentations were made, it would have been easy enough for me to look at the cash from operations, which was a growing negative number, and where that cash from, from operations was being funded from, which was money that they were receiving in the capital markets. But I did not feel like I could even raise my hand and ask that question. There's this fascinating sort of, um, I, maybe it's a kind of a hypnotism that happens. I mean, you know, plenty of smart people in the room, but that was not a question that was asked because our eyes were on these presentations that showed absolutely incredible numbers. And one of the numbers that I remember in one of the charts was the gross margin per car that they sold. 
And they were targeting higher and higher margins. And this was supposed to be a good thing. By contrast, another competitor in that space, CarMax, I, I used to own it uh, about 10 years ago. Um, they target narrower and narrower margins because the gross margin, uh, if the, the gross margin is narrower, that implies that both, both sides of the transaction are getting a better deal. They're taking a smaller slice of the uh, cost of distributing the car. But but the way these presentations went was you kind of got hypnotized by that number. You just went, oh my God, look at it. It's just going up and up and up. Isn't that great? They're so wonderful. Um, so how do you draw yourself back to these kind of simple questions that actually I was too afraid to ask at the time? Uh, you know, I thought through that and and that was one of the cases where I don't believe I would have ended up owning it. But just to go back to one of your previous points for the listener, and one of the points that I make in the letter is that, you know, there's no genius here in terms of not having bought, say, Carvana and having suffered terrible losses. I mean, it's down, I don't know how much. Um, but I asked myself, you know, what what would have helped me not to buy it? I mean, I dodged that bullet, if you like. And you need, if you want to be successful, you need to dodge a lot of bullets. And I realized that if I'd sat there and asked myself that question, that would have helped. And I guess all three checklist items are all around the same idea. And, uh, you know, uh, there's Robert Schiller, who's a genius economist from Harvard. He talks about narrative economics. Mm -hmm. There's some beautiful articles. I think there's even a book by him on it. I'm, not, is, claiming yeah. to, I'm not claiming to understand the idea very well, but... You know, our brains are sort of sponges for narratives. And what happens in these presentations is the company tells a narrative that kind of hypnotizes the audience to the degree that smart analysts are no longer asking basic questions. And somebody like me is feels unable or unwilling to raise my hand and say, is it a problem that all of these operating losses are actually coming from the capital markets? And what if that gets switched off? Can they fund their growth? And um so, you know, anything that will help me. So we go from making sure that my keys or my wallet, I don't leave it on the car seat next to me because it increases the probability that I'll leave it behind and then I'll have a lost wallet, all the way to creating these checklist items so that I can reduce the probability that I will veer in that direction. Yeah. Do those three also have to do with like, I guess they are, a lot of those companies were reliant on like debt as well? You know, so, so uh, if we take Google, um, uh, Google funds its uh, moonshot projects from prodigious cash flow. They don't have to take on debt to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And in a certain way, you would rather, I mean, I think that, you know, you would rather that if a company is taking on some cap expansion program, that they would issue equity. Because at least then, if something goes wrong, you know, you're not in a situation of financial distress. But for some reason, which is beyond me, you know, in the case of Horsehead, it was the case. In the case of uh, Carvana, it was the case. I don't, you know, they stopped issuing equity. Why? Because they didn't want to dilute their shares. They didn't want to dilute their ownership. They felt that they could get, you know, they didn't want, they, they, they wanted to own more. They wanted to do, to have more cash to spend on growing their business, but they didn't want to own a smaller proportion of that business. Contrast that with, again, a kind of like a, a seminal moment for me. Uh, and it's so unbelievably hard to do. So this is before 2008, I've gone and bought shares of White Mountains Insurance, uh, which is a um, 
It was it was owned and controlled by Jack Byrne, the former CEO of Geico, and this was he, I remember Jack Byrne. He, they, they, he was a, a company. He was an investment vehicle that issued exit exit visas for management teams that had gone into the insurance business and were now looking at huge losses and didn't want to be in the insurance business anymore. So this was a company that he'd managed to acquire at half book. And so it was a very simple analysis. It was clear that book value, he was buying it at far less than book value. And it was it was pretty easy to see one's way to a double. And then they do a share issuance. And, you know, I remember standing with Jack Byrne, who's dressed in Bermuda shorts because the company's re-domiciled to Bermuda. And I say, why are you doing a share issuance? It's going to dilute our returns. It's going to dilute all of our returns, including yours. He just said, it's the prudent thing to do. You know, it's the prudent thing to do because, yes, in 95% of all foreseeable circumstances, we have enough capital. But if we get all of these bad events at the same time, we still want to have enough capital. That's an example of somebody allowing prudence to rule over greed. Whereas a company that just issues debt because they don't want to issue equity, either because they can't issue equity or because they're too greedy and they want to hold on to more of the business without diluting themselves, they're kind of emphasizing greed or upside over prudence. And something that came out of this most recent Berkshire Hathaway meeting, I hope I'm making sense to you in the audience. No, absolutely. Julia, it's incredible. Keep going. Is that, uh, you know, and I don't remember who said it, but it was somebody who works closely with Warren. And they said, you cannot believe how much time and energy Warren puts into thinking about the downside and taking care of the downside and making sure that the downside doesn't materialize. And so, so many times when it turns out that, you know, uh, when the disaster struck, I, sometimes when disaster strikes, Berkshire Hathaway is there. An example in my mind is an Australian insurance company. I'm not sure what happened, but Berkshire Hathaway took a significant loss. So it's not like Berkshire Hathaway always gets it right. But there are so many times, one example, before the financial crisis, Berkshire Hathaway was a big owner of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And over time, leading up to the financial crisis, by the time they got we got to the financial crisis, Berkshire Hathaway had sold out of all of its shares of Pharma Mac and of Pharma Mac, of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, to government-sponsored um, uh, enterprises who were responsible for ensuring uh, inexpensive financing for mortgages with an interesting way of doing it. And uh, it worked very effectively in the United States until they became um, their underwriting standards, along with many other people's underwriting standards, went down the drain. And Warren saw that and quietly left. And I found it very interesting. It was a question at this year's Berkshire meeting where somebody asked, apparently Berkshire Hathaway got to owning about four or five billion dollars worth of Taiwan Semiconductor, which is not an insubstantial position even for Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, he sold out within three or four months. And I actually, when that, when I saw that, I thought that it was either Ted Wexler or Todd Coombs. And if I understood the way he answered the question, that was very much Warren Buffett. And it seems he didn't get into it, that he focused a little bit more on potential risks with China and decided that uh, maybe he didn't want a company with a huge number of assets based in Taiwan. Uh, but you know, at the same time, it seems like he's increased his bets, bets, I don't like calling them bets, his investments in businesses in Japan. And so you know, he's He's looking for things that are very, very far out on the horizon, and he just doesn't want to be there. And he does that time and again. Um, 
Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I could keep meandering here because I'm getting into something that I see you're enjoying, but I should no, allow you I to love it. If you to please, please, um, if you want to keep adding, this is great because this is how well, podcasting should be. Well, I'll I'll just, you know, I'm not sure if it was I'm not sure if this is in a response to a question that you asked, but I realize as I'm talking to you and I kind of bring these things up that my capacity to distinguish between to 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 be disciplined in not taking remote risks, but which would be painful if they transpired. So a management team that borrows debt to invest in a plant that might cost twice as much and take twice as long um, is focusing very much on the upside of what will happen. And they're not thinking too clearly, or maybe they've kind of suppressed thinking about what if it goes wrong. And, you know, uh, by contrast, if you take that White Mountain situation, the, the people behind that, and Jack Byrne very kindly says to me, he says, you know, this, the, Warren Buffett support this move, supports this move, which, of course, that shut me up completely, of course, because I'm a, now if Warren Buffett supports it. But, uh, but that shows a kind of thinking that says, you know, even if it's a very, very remote risk, we need to take care of it because it would because we care so much about preventing capital loss. We will leave money on the table. We're willing to make less money on the upside. We want to avoid capital loss. I think that I, you know, I can see better distinctions in my mind. And that's something where I still actually I think I have a long way to go. Long, long way yeah. to go. I like that though. Maybe that's another to add. And um, just continuing, I, I want to ask you one more question because you've been way too generous with your time. Is <laughs> I'm looking um at, at the remainder of the investing checklist. Um, so we'll change change number three that you will talk to management. I suppose that's yes. the new update. But okay, so number four, gather investment research in the right order. Number five, discuss your investment ideas with people who have no axe to grind. Number six. Never buy or sell stocks when the market is open. Number seven, if a stock tumbles after you buy it, don't sell it for two years. I noticed in the book you said that got, you got that from Monish. And then yes. number eight, don't talk about your current investments. And I guess my question for you, and this is um, a curiosity, because I think I could see like a thread between all of these in your process is, what is your content diet look like? And you were mentioning in here like, gather investment research in the right order. Like, what does that look like for you in terms of the right order? And then also the content you consume and maybe the content you might want to like tune out a bit. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and it, um, you know, I, so part of what comes up to me is you, is you, and you, you've, you've read my letters and you've read the book and I really appreciate that you, I mean, for everybody who's listening uh, Julia's done her homework, and I can tell you that that homework requires real uh, work. So uh, Julia will have spent at least—I mean, reading my book will have taken five or six hours if it's on an audio book, and then reading I the did, letters. I did so, the audio, and I also have a physical copy. <laughs> well, well, thank you, and and a shout out to Malk Williams who did the readout of the book. A really lovely guy that I have not met in person yet, based in the UK. Um, but um, you know the. So, so how writing narrows down and makes the complex seem overly, overly simple. And I think that uh, um, perhaps the, the, the and I'll get to specific answers, but I think that uh, I, I start 
from the perspective of I'm not a genius, I'm capable of making some big mistakes. Uh, and so I want to create, I want to bowl with um, with the alleys up, whatever you call it, the curtains up. I want to create situations where I can't help but succeed. And I want to shy away from situations where there's plenty of opportunities to fail. And so I'm trying to set up boundaries and barriers and things to bump up against that will kind of keep me in some way on the straight and narrow. And those principles are ways of doing that. And so when I'm talking about collecting the in, information, read things in the right order, all I'm really talking about is that if, you know, it is somebody, I don't know if it's happened to you, you meet somebody at a bar or a friend of a friend, and he says, oh, I've got this great idea, I got to talk to you about it. You know, and you can come under their influence. We all can. We see what happens when a management puts together a great presentation. I think my only point is, that you don't want to try and outsmart the smart management or the smart salesperson. You just want to kind of try and avoid it. I mean, there's a great, uh, I think it's a sort of like Buddhist, Japanese, you know, what's the sharpest sword? And they have these things where you put the short sword into the stream and you put the lightest piece of cloth to see if it cuts the cloth or not. And the idea is that the sharpest or the best sword, the cloth never crosses the sword because it's so sharp that it pushes it away. Don't get yourself anywhere near to situations where there's trouble. Don't expect yourself to outsmart the markets, to outsmart the world. So one of those things is collect the inv the information in the right order. When it comes to the diet, uh, you asked about, um, you know, I mean, there's very obvious things. So don't read a, a, a sell-side research report until you've read the annual, the annual accounts. I think that what I've found hugely helpful for me more recently is that so on the opposite side of the desk where I am, there's another desk where there's no visual computer, no distracting computer screen, no opportunity to check stock prices. And it's some a really fun exercise to take an annual report of a company and write down my simplified balance sheet, my simplified income statement, cash flow statement, write down the salient uh, things that I think are important about that company on a three by five card and then write down what what tops I would pay for it. You know, get to an independent decision, an independent evaluation before you start listening to a whole bunch of other stuff is gonna it's kind of fascinating. But if you listen to the salesperson talking about the gross margin per car and where they're targeting, now, you know, the the classic phrase is, I need to get comfortable with the with the valuation. So the person already has an orientation that they want to own this thing. They've been sold on the idea one way or another, and now they need to get comfortable. That state of mind is not a great state of mind to be in. And so you don't ever want to allow yourself to get into that state of mind, if you like. Uh, I don't know if that's... Um, I would tell you more generally, I, I just... When I'm looking across at uh, books that I hope I'll get to soon. One of them, Monish has talked about a couple of times, the Caesar's Palace coup. It's, I mean, in a certain way, we talked about the ratio of early on, the ratio of raw writing notes and the like to the final product. And we, I think I was talking about three to one, but um, the more time that's spent creating a document or a write-up, the more interesting it's likely to be. And books, tend to be very, very good sources because despite the biases that are in the books, and often a book will be a, um, you know, the telling of a great businessman of all of the reasons why he's a genius and none of the reasons of why he made a lot of mistakes, but still uh, even the autobiographies, but especially books written by um, 
professional journalists have enormous amounts of knowledge and insight and wisdom in them. And one should really start by those kinds of materials before one gets to the more fluffy press releases and um, public statements, if you like. Having said that, I mean, you know, in when when Monish was started talking about fiat, one of the ways in which he did due diligence on fiat was to do to listen to. He's now no longer alive. The CEO is an Italian Canadian guy, uh, and watching YouTube videos, so you can get a sense of somebody from watching YouTube videos. So there are new sources as well, if you like. I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit, Julia, because I'm not no, sure exactly what question I'm no, answering. No, but I think it's interesting just to get a, even a glimpse into like your own process. And I, I can kind of like visualize like going through the annual report, simplifying the statements on the, the note cards and then the other sources of content and also doing your homework before you go read someone else's work, a la the, you know, the sell side and whatnot. It's really right. helpful. And then um, things like, you know, YouTube, um, podcasts, like it's just interesting. You know, I'm always curious, like the content diet that goes into it. And also I know for you, um, you know, finding someone who doesn't have an ax to grind. And I think a big takeaway from the book is just surrounding yourself with, um, you know, kind of this mastermind group, if you will. And I'm, I, I know you found that over the years, especially like being a follower of Warren Buffett, being around other like-minded folks who are followers in that value investing world. Um, Monish Pabrai, for example, um, I think that's a good takeaway because it's so important to surround yourself yeah. with um, folks who are, you know, better and smarter and will make you better and um, challenge you in ways. It's kind of like one's destiny, that, that making those decisions one's destiny. And what I want to share, what I find myself wanting to share with you as you say that is that it's an incremental process. Uh, it's it's step by step. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this and you start deciding that somebody is not a uh, is a toxic influence in your life, that doesn't mean that you have to go and throw them out tomorrow. It may just be that you take a couple of more days to respond to that email that's in your inbox, or you favor seeing somebody else when you're in town rather than them. Uh, so this is kind of like an example of my shades of gray versus Monish's black and white type of deal. Life, in part is a sorting process. And I think that there are ways to accelerate that sorting process. Actually, we went into the sort of quote technology of thank you cards, but in a certain way, thank you cards are a sorting process because if you write, and at certain point in my life, I was writing, I think three thank you notes a day. I wouldn't allow myself to leave the office without writing three thank you notes. But, but then, you know, some people respond to those thank you notes like Monish, and some people don't respond to those thank you notes. So you get a kind of sorting process by who you end up in closer contact with. And so um, uh, it's a it's a lifelong process of kind of maybe another way of putting it is, you know, if you've got a garden that's got some great flowers and some great weeds, um, and you don't want the weeds and you want the flowers, you don't have to get rid of all of the weeds in one day, and you don't have to pour, pour a bunch of weed poison on tomorrow. You just quietly start taking the weeds away, quietly start figuring out what kind of environment makes more flowers flourish. It's a process. Yeah, it's a process. I like that visual. Well, Guy, I really appreciate you taking the time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I, I want to give you a, a couple moments. If you want to share where folks can follow you on social media, um, you know, learn more about your work that you've done, read letters and whatnot. And if you have any parting folks for the um, sorry, if you have any parting thoughts yeah. for the folks who are watching and listening, uh, please take a moment to do so. So the two, thank you so much. The two social media channels that I use the most, I guess, are LinkedIn and um, 
Twitter, and I think on both of them, my handle is gspear. Um, uh, I, I watched a wonderful video by a guy called David Perel and Matt Kobach called How to Crush oh, yeah. It on Twitter. It kind of really taught me that it, one of the things is that if somebody is toxic on Twitter, you just either mute them or you block them. Don't waste any moments thinking about it. Twitter is there for me a bit like a university seminar where I can connect with other like-minded people and have intelligent conversations. And so those are two great places. I uh, welcome intelligent conversations from anyone. And that's one of the crazy, wonderful world developments in the world where we can do that. Um, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. And you had a question for me that I've missed out on, but uh, oh, so. if you no, I know you got it. It was um, you know, where folks can find you on social. Um, if you want to share where they can read um some of your letters. Um, and also any parting thoughts. Um, that That's you might yeah. Have. So so thank you, and sorry that I had to ask you to repeat the question. All um, good. Uh, the the you have to kind of like uh, sign a disclaimer because it's a privately offered fund and the letters related to the fund. So you have to find me. I'm not even going to direct the listener directly because that may get me into trouble. Well, we won't, we don't have to do department. that. Then we'll, we can edit that. Yeah, part but that's out. fine. But if you want, if you, if you fill out the relevant forms, then, then online, then you're absolutely fine to go read it. And it's easy enough to find my parting thoughts. Um, I, I would just tell you that, uh, and I don't, I mean, may, this is for myself as well. I, I would say that, uh, my returns have been far lower than I expected them to be when I started this journey. Despite that, I've still outperformed net of all fees and costs, uh, all the indices, by a very, very small margin. Um, I think that uh, something that I'm grateful for and something that is worth thinking about is not how do you pump out the best returns, but how do you survive? And uh, you know, surviving and staying in the game is investing as an infinite game and surviving and staying in the game is more important than knocking the lights out in any one particular year because that particular year where you the behavior that you engage in to knock the lights out may well mean that your fund ends or is shut down or your investment portfolio is shut down and that would be a terrible terrible outcome so thinking not in terms it's not the fastest skier that wins the race it's the fastest skier that doesn't get injured so um, the other thing that I would say in this particular period where I think that people are coming out of is a bit of a hangover from the most recent period is be kind to yourself and be forgiving of yourself. We are humans and we make mistakes. If the name of the game is to compound wealth, uh, to not forgive yourself, to not accept that you're human is kind of damaging to that process. You want to stay in the game and part of the way you stay in the game is you forgive your human frailties, learn from them, and don't move on. Learn, move on with a better and deeper understanding of those human frailties. So I love that, and I love like the introspective nature of the book. And so, just again, the Charlie Mungerism of like you rub your rub your nose and your mistakes. We all make mistakes, and we all need yeah. to um, evaluate and, and learn from them. More importantly, Guy Spear, um, founder and CEO of Aquamarine Capital. It has been such a delight having you on the show. I've learned so much from you and I just appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas and your knowledge. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you, Julia. And I feel like I have to get one last word in, which is thank you. One of the reasons why I admire you, Julia, is that you are plotting your own path and you're taking independent decisions 
to build the right life for yourself. And that's something that I admire and appreciate and is to be respected. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you.